0: We're in Genesis 22 and I don't know, we're starting sort of a, our own protocol and part of that we'll be standing while we read and only because that way it doesn't seem like as long when I actually uh, teach because all the announcements you just sat through. So stand with me for a moment and let's read at least the first part of this. <laughs> read along with me verse 1. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham. And he said, here I am, Abraham, he said, here I am. And he said, now take now your son, your only son, Isaac, or Ischach, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey he took two of the young men with him and Isaac his son, and he split the wood of the burnt offering. And he arose and he went to the place of which God had told him. Now, then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and he saw the place from afar off. And Abraham said to the young men, uh, Stay here with the donkey, the lad and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood and the burnt offering and he laid it on Isaac his son. He took the fire in his hand and the knife, and the two of them went together. Now, Isaac said to his father, Abraham his father, My father, he said, Here I am, son. He said, Look, here's the fire and here's the wood. Where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb, the lamb, the burnt offering. So the two of them went together. Pray with me, please. Lord, we can't help but but experience a certain gravity as we read a text like this. We recognize Abraham's a human being just like us and a man who has waited 25 years and then some for a son. He's waited for a promise to come true. And after that long and then however long it is between then and the age He is when this chapter transpires. He loves that Son. God, You even told us that in this chapter. He loved the Son. And I just pray that we would be able to live this chapter a bit. Understand it to a much deeper degree very personally, and very real. And I thank You, God, that You're not like me because I couldn't possibly imagine loving anyone enough to kill one of my children or offer one of my children as You, Father, have to Your Son, Jesus the Christ, Your only begotten Son, to redeem me. And I, I just even have the smallest understanding of Oh, how great the love You have lavished upon me that You'd call me Your child knowing that that was the expense, that was the price. God, now I just pray that You would fill me with Your Holy Spirit. Immerse me that this precious flock You bled and died for would see You and hear You and know You and love You and want You and experience You. Please, God. Please. Make Your Scripture come alive before us. Color in the black and white in a way we can understand. In Jesus' name, Amen. Be seated, please. I would say this morning as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the Scriptures. Let the Bible always be your authority. It's been a long 25 years since chapter 12. And now maybe it's been a long 50 years. We really don't know how old Isaac is in this chapter. We just know he's old enough to have this conversation. And he's old enough to reason. And he's no dummy. He figures this one out. And if you're anything like me, the first time you read this chapter, there's a part of you that just gets nauseous. You think, how can a human being ever possibly... Even consider killing one of his own children. That is so foreign to me. Well, it isn't. It isn't in a country where, or in a Western culture, where more children have died from abortions than all the wars combined. But I want you to recognize something, and it's something so consistent even with that point. Abraham has now approached his fourth altar. Abraham was called out of Ur of the Chaldeans. That's the Sumerian culture basin, Sumeria, the area of the Persian Gulf. In the Persian Gulf, there were basically four types of idols. He would leave from there and head towards Syria and in Syria there are four types of idols. He'll be passing through the area and heading down from there he will wind up in Canaan where he's living now in the area of Shiva. I'm sorry, of Beersheva. There there are basically four types of idols. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't more than four idols, but they all fit into four categories quite cleanly. In the Sumerian culture basin, one of the idols is named Ninersag. He's the god of production. He's the god that you pray to and make offerings to if you want babies. But if you really wanted some other provision, for instance, that of your your grass, your grain, your animals. You'd go to Enki. If you were in a situation where you found yourself in peril, you would sacrifice to Inanna, the god of protection. But like most of the places, the one god that seems to be the most what gets the most press. And in Scripture, the most. Molech, Milcom, Ashtara, Asherah, Hathor, Hamash, are the gods of pleasure. Now, we're all aware these are not real gods. We're all aware that these are idols, and at best, or at the clearest, they're demons at best. But in every culture that Abraham is in, there will be these four basic gods in Canaan, Beelzebub, Lord of the Flies, is the God of Production. You went to Beelzebub if you asked for, after all, the idea of it's flies, and you know, flies seem to replicate pretty quickly, and if you want a baby, why not go to that? You're aware of the fact that they blame Jesus. They tell him that the miracles he actually does were by the power of Beelzebub, according to the Gospel of Luke. If you were looking for provision, it would be Shigar. If you were looking for protection, that's the one you may be most familiar with at least, is Dagon. If you were looking for pleasure, it would be Ishmun. And the reason I say that is, Abraham has been on a journey. He has left these foreign gods, these foreign idols, and Joshua, in the last chapter of Joshua, makes clear the house that Abraham was raised in was an idol-worshipping house. With a God that tells him, Now leave everything and follow me, I'm going to make you dad. And if I were raised in Ur, I'd say, Okay, I get it. You're an inner sag. I mean, right? That's the one who's speaking. You're the baby-giving God. And it's interesting, by verse 7 of chapter 12, you'll find he built his first altar. Immediately, or shortly, well, immediately in verses, verse 8 a second altar is built. And as he heads south between the area of Bethel and Ai, and as he builds this second one, he is hungry. It's a famine. And he heads down to Egypt. And remember, this is the first of She's My Sister routines that he pulls. He's two of those he has. By the time he is done, he will come back a much wealthier man. And he'll come back strangely to that same altar he had built. That's altar number two. And I'd have to think where he comes from There's a part of him that thinks, so I thought you were an innocent, but you must also be Enki, because after all, you're also the God who provides for me. But then after that, he will build a third altar, and right after a third altar, he will have to go and rescue his nephew Lot from the kings, you remember, in the valley of Sodom. And a part of him, I have to think, wow, wait a minute. You're not just the God of production of purpose, but you're also the God of provision. But you're not only the God of provision, you're also the God of protection. And after that, God says, look at I'm Almighty God. Now understand, the idea of Almighty is... All of the things you're seeking for might is found in one individual. And I'm not the God who gives. I am the God who is these things. And understand, it's the journey every one of us will be on. And the reason I say that is because ultimately what we're trying to figure out is exactly how much God do I need in my life? Because obviously whatever God doesn't do, the world's going to have to pick up the remainder. It's going to have to pick up the balance. And so the problem is the most common area that I, at least in my earlier walk, and perhaps every one of us, is this is the area of pleasure. Now, one thing that every one of these gods of, and again, remember, we're saying these aren't real gods, that these, every one of these lowercase gods had in common when it came to the gods of pleasure was the cover charge. For every god of pleasure, you were required to offer to it not a lamb, not a sheep, not a ram, not an oxen, but your firstborn child. As a matter of fact, you will find scripture after scripture where God makes this clear. And for Leviticus 18.21, you shall not let any of your descendants pass through the fire to Molech. Molech was a god of pleasure. In 2 Kings 16.7, about King Ahaz, it says he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel and made his son, one son, pass through the fire according to the abomination of the nations in which God had cast out from before them. And he says that about Manasseh as well in 2 Kings 21.6. His oldest boy is the cover charge for the goddess of pleasure. You really want to sacrifice to the goddess of pleasure? Simple. Why don't you hand over your babies? Now, I don't want to go and look at I'm not here to, to, to jank with your past because the issue isn't your past anymore. Now it's your present and future. If that's ever happened to you and you've laid your baby on the altar, uh, be it before it was born or otherwise, here, I'm going to let you know God is here to forgive you of all of that, but He does not want you to do that again. He doesn't want you to bear those scars. And understand, that has been happening for thousands of years. It's always been the same thing. Offer this up to the God of pleasure. When the, the Israelites are in battle in 2 Kings chapter 3, they're battling against the Moabites. The king's name is Misha. And Misha, we read, he is losing. He says he sacrifices his son as a burnt offering on the wall. That's verse 27, for which causes Israel to get so grossed out by it. The end up there like, we're not going to fight anymore. I can't do this anymore. As he? As this guy had sacrificed at that point to Hamash, the God of pleasure of the um, Moabites. Now, in Samaria, it was no different. In Samaria, your god of pleasure, you sacrificed your oldest boy to. In Syria, it was no different. If you were to sacrifice your boy, you would do it to the god of pleasure. And now he's come down to Canaan. And as he's come down to Canaan, it's the same thing. Now, the reason I say that is, for Abraham to actually have to go with his son I have to say, and I look at all of this, I cannot but think that he probably wished it was Ishmael. But God doesn't play that game. He's been waiting this long for this. The only reason I say that is, is that as this is happening, there's one thing that Abraham has to recognize. That this God is also the God of pleasure. Now, the problem with that is, we've already allowed the world to define that word. We almost feel dirty saying the word pleasure in church. 'Cause it automatically for many of us could go to a completely bizarre place that the world is defined instead of what God is, is built. I want you to recognize, when God first made man, and I challenge you, don't just believe me, search it on your own in chapter 2 of the book of Genesis, what we find again is that God made man, and then God made this garden, from which man was able to watch God make. And we read that it was beautiful to the eyes, it was, it was, it was good for food, and then he saw this, and then God actually picked him up and put him in this garden, this beautiful place, and as he put him in this beautiful place, he's not... Try some of this. Eat some of this. And what would it be like to not even know that you had taste buds? And then you put that first thing into your mouth and then you taste a peach for the first time or whatever and you go, oh, this is good. Now think about the kind of relationship you have with God at that moment. I mean, you are ascertaining data and you are trying to figure out, now who is this person? I know you made me. I know you gave me life. That's the first things that happen when I open my eyes. You are breathing life into me. And now I watch you go make this thing and you make beautiful stuff. I've concluded that. And you make beautiful stuff For for me to enjoy. And scripture tells us, by the way, he gives us all things, all good things for us to enjoy. Not to endure, not to tolerate, but to enjoy. I'd like you to think about this. Who made your eyes? He gave you the ability to see. But when he gave you the ability to see, did you ever realize he also invented color? Now why did he do that? He invented your ears. Now it's God who did that. And then he gave them to you. But after he invented your ears, he also invented songs. Why did he do that? He invented your nose. And it isn't just to prop up your glasses. So he gave you your nose. And then he put smells on flowers. Why did he do that? He gave you your mouth. Sure, it can speak. It can speak blessings or cursings. That's going to be your choice. But then he invented Thai food. Why did he do that? Because he loves me, Clive. That's why. And he allows my wife to show patience and endurance. Invented your skin. It's a good thing. Great invention, right? Biggest organ on your body. Holds in the rest of you. We could be very thankful for that. Some of us, it does a better job than others. Usually, youth tends to show its containment better. The rest of us have to work at it more. But then he invented the touch of a friend sound of a giggle. The sound of a giggle. The smell of Italian food, fresh baked bread when you walk by. You know. I mean, think about think about the things that he invented. Is our God not a God of pleasure? Look at what we've done with that. Here's the problem, beloved. And can I just get as simple as I can with you? I believe that that's one of the biggest areas where the church has failed. I mean, in mass, for which we are all part. Because I believe that what we've often done is we've said, God's for saving, but the world's for fun. So let's make sure that, we, so we're going to make sure we can comb the world to figure out how much fun we can have in the world. Can I still do this? Can I still do that? And we're not asking God, what do you have instead of that? <laughs> We're just going, well, what's out there in the world that we can do? Can I do this and still not go to hell? Because in the end of it all, God saved me. And I just want to make sure I'm still going to heaven. But earth, isn't that sort of for the devil? And once we get done with all the devil stuff, we can go and deal with God later. I mean, isn't that a horrible place to be? But it's a side note in this, but a very fundamental. There are two side notes, and then obviously the fundamental issue of what's happening here. But I want you to recognize what's going through the mind to some degree of Abraham as he's looking at this, and he has to reconcile, wow, God, you're really, you're really everything. This almighty God, you 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 are my provision. You are my purpose, you're my production. You're the thing who gives me you're the one who gives me fruitfulness and life. You're the one who protects me, but you're also the one that is my pleasure. And I can tell you, until that gets reconciled into your heart, you will never celebrate the Lord like he intended, like he created you to. The moment the Lord became my pleasure, well first of all I stopped trying to make you do it. Which uh is the best place anything could happen. It's best thing for a marriage, best thing for friends, best thing for a family. But my world has become a dance. It's become a song and it's ridiculous. And I don't care if you think I'm a geek or a freak or whatever in it because it isn't going to make a difference because you're not my pleasure anymore. Now there is a part of pleasure that I do get from seeing you grow in the Lord. There's a part that really just bolsters, I would say jazz is my groovy, but really in the bottom line of it all is if the entire world would fade away, and you really see it, by the way, when people are at the threshold of death, the difference between a person with great faith and a person with none. Because a person with great faith you can't take away their pleasure if it's the Lord. David would say, you are my portion and the lot of my inheritance. The lines have fallen to me in good places. In other words, David's like, of all the things that you read on the will, I got God. And I went, oh, I scored. Of all the things, you could have the clock, man. Oh my God. <laughs> nice. Butterfly collection. Give it to Landon. Oh, this is awesome. Look at what I got. I got the Lord. Whoa, this is as good as it gets. And understand, that's where we should be. And if that is the case, then I can delight in the law of the Lord and in His commandments. And I can delight in His people because somehow, strangely enough, I can see a little bit of him in you. But I see even the littlest bit of him in you. I'm gonna. How can I not delight in that? Does that make sense? And that's the hard part in this. I mean, if, if there was somebody that I was just, you know, first love crush thing at 16. You know, and like one of those stories. I never had that, by the way. I was weird that way. And... Uh, And, you know, and then they grew up and then they had kids, but you always kind of had that hidden love inside. And then you looked at the kids, you would kind of love them anyways, just because. I mean, you do there. Am I the only one that's like this? I meet someone and they remind me of somebody that I used to know and I instantly like them because I liked the other person. I'm like, well, and I've I've told people, boy, I really hope you're awesome because the person you remind me of is awesome and I already feel that way for you. So I just don't freak out when I say that. But, you know. and, And the reason I say that is that. That Abraham is in a place now, again, where he's reconciling that aspect of it. But the hard part about that is, is he knows the cost of that. And the cost is going to be his boy. And and yet, what we're going to find in the end of it all is the greatest act of adoration. Listen to this, please. The greatest act of adoration that's ever taken place in history was never going to be one that you did. The whole idea of fearing in this is the idea that something is so big it makes you tremble. That's the idea of fear, yada. The idea of something, in other words, you are the biggest thing in my life. How do I know that, according to this, God's going to say, you know how I know that that I'm the biggest thing in your life? Because you didn't withhold your son. And I go, wow, that's simple math. Because God was the biggest thing in Abraham's life, he wouldn't hold back his son. And I went, God, you didn't hold back your son. I'm the biggest thing in your life. That's a really crazy thought. And this whole chapter sets me up for that. So here we are, verse 21. And by the way, we've now, uh, uh, chapter 22. And chapter 21, verse 10, was the last time we heard Sarah speak. By the way, next uh, week she'll die. I'm sorry. (laughs) Still read the book. It's still good. Uh, But so her last words were cast out the bondwoman and her son because that boy and her mom, they're not going to be in any way, they're not going to get inheritance with my son. And she ends with my son, my Isaac. Those are the last words we hear in Scripture from her. And now we read God tested. Now, chapter 22, verse 1, it says God tested. Now, it's interesting because we get to the New Testament and I have to reconcile a text that says God doesn't tempt with evil, nor can he be tempted with evil. And then I look at this and I go, okay, and I know the word Nasa. And then I realize the word means prove. Now, I'm really thankful for the years I got to teach. Now, let me give you a little bit of background, at least a little insight into my and my wife's relationship. My wife's the kind of gal that's always done things by the book, you know. So that's years of long work and arduous training and discipline out of duty and so forth. And I'm the kind of person that trips over the same thing; it drives her crazy. It happens all over the place, you know. Um, and, and that came the case when it came to teaching secondary school. Both of us wound up doing so. Um, she actually went and did got the whole, you know. What do they call that thing? Certificate? You know how bad I am with it. I don't even have it. So certificate, you know, that just says you're a certified teacher. You know how to give them the look, you know, and that kind of thing, which actually is a class. You learn how to, which I thought my wife should be good at that. she has be giving me that look for a long time. And, 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 on, and but we were, in, she put in all of her sort of CVs everywhere and nobody was interested, you know, it was, it was like right before the beginning of school. And then there was a teacher teaching a worship class at a Christian school um, and he was just way burnt out, and he said, hey, I'd really love for you to come in and teach the class. And I'm like, I don't know about that, man. I'm not a high school teacher or any of that. I hated high school when I was in it. Why in the world would I want to go back now? And, and he said, well, you know, give it a shot. It's about worship, and, you know, these kids could really use use that. And so uh, my wife came. She's like, well, I've just got to see how you work this one. <laughs> you know, and we went in there, and I asked them, so what's worship? And they no one knew. They all scratched their head, and I said, put down your instruments. We're having a Bible study. And strangely, from all of that, through a series of other events, basically of that like, next thing I know, we were both basically working at the school. But I remember, and the only reason I say that is that I remember what it was like every time I'd give a test. I was the biggest cheerleader. I mean, kids could walk in while I was grading them, and I'm like, oh, come on, man, come on, you've got to at least get a B, come on. I wouldn't fudge anything, but I would really want to, and I'm like, please get this right, please get this right. And it's like, the idea that, look, at, I didn't want to give something, I, and then there are some teachers, not that my wife's like this, but there are some teachers, you know, they'll go, just so you know, before we start the class, most of you will fail it. And then they smile, and you think, wow, this guy really shouldn't <laughs> have tenure. Right. But there are other people that's like, look, at, I really, really want you to pass this. Well, there's a difference between setting you up to fail and setting you up to prove you. And that's the word that's here. The idea of it is that God actually knows what test to give you that he knows you're going to pass. Now understand, God already knows. So it isn't like he has to get a test and go, oh, well, I'm really glad we, I figured that out. God already knew it before he started. But he really wants to put you in a place where you can actually win. See, we read in Scripture, God's actually really strange because he's actually trying to catch you doing something right. Are you aware of that? It tells us, by the way, the eyes of the Lord seek by the way, to show himself strong to those whose hearts are his. He really wants to do that. But understand, it also says that the Lord is circ- or the Father is seeking those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. It doesn't say he's seeking us to do something wrong, because what kind of sport would that be? How hard would that be for God to catch you doing something wrong? It's like, you know, I mean, it's like Shantae and, and her sister are all like racing, and they're like standing next to something. The first one to touch us all right, I win. You know, and it's like, God's like, okay, let's, uh, with these like angel and he's like, Michael, first one to see someone have a bad thought, go. I win, okay. You know, I mean, how hard is that? But he's catchy, so he wants to catch you doing something right. And interesting, even in Scripture it says that God, actually, hear me on this, please listen, that God, we read, will actually bring to light the hidden things of darkness and even expose our secrets. Now, that should pretty much give you some kind of indigestion just thinking about it. But then it says that each man's praise... Would be from God. And that's the really weirdest thing of it all, that God actually wants to shine light on dark places so he could say something nice about you. And I think, well, then you really don't want to shine it there, because you're not going to find a lot in that corner. Can I, can I lead you to someplace else where I thought I did something right? And, and, and yet, here is God, and, and here's the idea that God knows that Abraham's going to come out of this thing right. And he picked the test site. That's pretty evident from this. And he picked the test. Now, what's amazing is you could be in a test right now and you could be like, God, I really am not enjoying this. I, there's nowhere, could you. let's be honest, there's nowhere where a man's going to enjoy this test. But God's going to put you in tests, to be honest, right at the very extreme of who in the world you are. To be honest, he really wants to prove you. He wants to, he's like, you know, every ever of those times where you're like, you know what, God, I just don't, I don't even feel. I don't even feel like a Christian right now. I don't feel like we're really close or whatever. And God's like, well, I'm going to put you in a test. You're like, wow, that's, that really brings me great comfort. God's like, no, actually, I'm going to show you the kind of Christian you really are. And sometimes, believe it or not, that's a good thing. There are times where the Lord will put you in something, and you come out of it and you're like, whoa, I think I passed that one. Now, there's somewhere the Lord will put you in it, and you'll fail and say, this one, you to know. You failed at this time because I'm going to put you in it again later, and you're going to see how much you've grown. In this case, God is putting Abraham in a test, let's be honest, that he passes. And it's the hardest test that any one of us would ever have to go through. So he says, Abraham, he says, here I am. He says, now take your son, your only son. Well, what about this other guy? Whatever happened to Ishmael? Wasn't that his son? Now, understand, God recognized him as a human being. He even recognized him as, in one way or another, some form of lineage from Abraham. But he didn't recognize him as a son. And the reason was, it was a work of the flesh. And please understand, that no matter what you want to do in your flesh, God God isn't going to give you credit for that. If you're like, God, look at all this great stuff. And and especially right now in a season where there's a handful of movies coming out where it's sort of the ends justify the means. We can kill and shoot and do this and steal and whatever we have to do. But in the end of it all, if we do something nice out of it, it's going to be okay. And God says, no, 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 no. If it's done in the flesh, I'm not going to recognize it. You need to trust me. So, what's interesting in this, and you're probably aware of this, some of you, that in verse 2, it's the first time in all of Scripture God actually introduced the word, achav, or as you would know it, love. I'd like you to think about all the things that have happened before this point. You have Adam and Eve. You have God and Adam. You have Adam and Eve. No mention of love. The word love. That's interesting. You have Noah and his wife. No mention of love. You have this person Enoch who walked with God and then was no more. No mention of love. You have Abraham who was called out of his family, takes, goes with dad and Lot, no mention of love yet. They go and they head down, they head down into Egypt, you know, and ultimately he's like, hey, that was not your, that's not your sister, that's your wife, you know, I don't know what you kind of think, you're kind of pull. no mention of love, nothing. And here is the first time in all of scripture, God's gonna say, now, you can never forget the first, and here it is right here, God's like, look it, if there's one place where I'm gonna tell you what love really is, Wow, I don't read Vivaldi. I don't read chocolate flowing through the streets or the dubs being released or anybody singing an aria and then dying. Uh, I don't see anything Shakespearean in any of this. What I see in this was a father that has to do the most awful thing in the universe, offer his son. And God says, no, that's love. And I go, wow, then apparently what I've defined as love is wrong because this is a really strange place to introduce love from where I'm coming from. Interesting, because the second time I'll read about love after this, it's going to be actually with a girl that gets spoken kindly to and then raped. And God says, oh, he loved her. And I find it really interesting that God says, look at you need to know this is what I call love and this is what the world's going to call love. Now you're going to choose which one you want to play with. I, don't, I think, wow, that's profound. It's like, oh, wow, this is this is love according to you and God. Now look at who said love here? God did. God said, "You take the son whom you love." God was the one who spoke this word. It's interesting. And then I think, well, well, let's just go for the New Testament. When's the first time I read the word love? Now that's a different word, not agape. When is the first time that word is mentioned in Scripture? Huh? It's at a big pool of water. When a voice comes from heaven and he says, This is my beloved son. Don't you find it interesting in both cases? In both books, God chooses to introduce the word love with his son. I don't think that that, that's any form of coincidence, do you? Well, moving from that, he says, Now I want you to take that son whom you love, and I want you to go to the land of Moriah. Could you say Moriah? The Moriah means seen, observed, or chosen by God. So this is God's specific place, Moriah. Do you realize, by the way, for what it's worth, that word's only mentioned twice in Scripture? Now, remember that. And may may God give me the clarity to go back to it, because it's fundamental. And I want you to offer him as an ola. olah, is your burnt offering on the mountain, which I'm going to tell you. Now, wait a minute. On one of the mountains, this is an area where there are mountains. This is an area where, of those, it's not just one, but there's a few, this area, and there's going to be one specific place That God says, on this one specific place, on this one specific mountain, I want you to make this offering. I'm going to be very specific about where I want this done. Now, where do you do an offering like this? You're going to do it at the highest place. That's going to be evident. Strange as that is, do you know most places that are really high, one of three things happens. Either there is a flat plain, or it's rounded, or there's a point. That's just sort of general geography, right? Well, you can't do it where there is a point, which is interesting because this particular mountain didn't have a point. It had a rounded edge to it a place where this sacrifice will take place. And I'll point out why in a moment. Verse 3, it tells us, Then Abraham rose early in the morning and he saddled his donkey. Now, in other words, he means he's got a burden. Actually, two burdens are coming out of that camp. There's a burden that's being laid upon that donkey and that, that burden's a burden bearer. On, on a burden bearer, the donkey. But then there's another burden. That's a burden that's being carried on the father's heart. The burden of having to lose his son. And I'd rather be the donkey at this moment. How about you? And he took with him two young men. Why two young men? You're probably aware of it from Deuteronomy 17 and 19. It tells us that by the mouth of two witnesses, a matter is established. So we have two witnesses. And he takes his son. And it says, and he split the wood for the burnt offering. The father does this. So in other words, the father is the one who's actually preparing it all. He prepared everything. Everything. And they arose and they went to the place that God had told them. Now, they're actually in Beersheba, so they have quite a distance to go because they're going from Beersheba, basically. This Mount Merach is going to be in Jerusalem, and I'll point that out in a moment. Then, on the third day, that tells us how long the journey is, right? For three days now, this boy's been as good as dead in the eyes of his father. Abraham looks and uh, lifts his eyes and then sees afar off. Abraham said to his young men now, stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder. Now, it's important to reason that this word lad, because lad speaks of somebody normally between the, basically he's old enough to be constituted a man, so that makes him normally older than 20, but it makes him normally older than a middle-aged guy, which is going to be, dare I say, somewhere about 40. So that puts him somewhere between 20 and 40, which means, by the way, that this boy has been raised for at least 20 years. Many would say he's about 30, but just the same it doesn't say. But three days his son's been as good as, as dead. The witnesses are now going to sit with the old burden bearer. Do you see that? Because the donkey's going to have to wait with him. And he says, stay here with the donkey, for the land and I will go yonder and worship. Now, it's the second time this base word is used, the word for it's about honor in, in essence, but it's the first time we'll see in the Scripture that the word worship is used. And I think this is key as well. Because the biggest act of worship is a father offering his son, and I think that's a really strange thing. And so he says, okay, we're going to go over there and worship, and we will come back to you. Now, either that is a lie, or he's speaking in faith. I mean, he knows he has to kill his son. So imagine, here you are, you walking, and I'm walking with two people that are my servants. These are people that I know well. They've been in my house somewhere, I'm with Luke and Landon. And I'm walking, and I'm there with my child. And I just, I'm sorry, I can't go farther. I can't even, put, I can't even develop this image in my own head the moment I put my own child in this. Because I would let you go to hell. I'm sorry. Aren't you thankful I'm not God? (laughs) There's no way. There's no way I could imagine handing over my child like the Father in Heaven did to His Son. Now, I don't have a son, but I have daughters. and, and, And I look at this and I think, how in the world, how could anybody? Nonetheless, I'd have to look at Landon, I'd have to look at Luke and go, we're coming back. Now, I don't know whether I would delude myself to comfort myself or I would have, but then I read Hebrews eleven seventeen and listen to this. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, Isaac and your seed shall be called, concluding that God was even able to raise him up from the dead. I mean, there's a part of you that go, no, wait a minute. You ever had a point where some circumstance, even it sounds like even the voice of God seems to clash with his promises? And you go, there is just no way in my small mind I can reconcile what you just said to the promise you've already given me. Those two things don't make There's, I can't put these. How in the world am I going to kill my kid and I'm going to be the father of many nations? Now, he doesn't even know that we could read chapter 24. He has actually some other ladies he's going to, after Sarah dies, the guy kind of turns into a swinger. And he has has a six-pack of kids after that. And I just think, how in the world? Because I don't know how old he is at this point. But I'm thinking, okay. But he's looking and he's like, God's like, but but God said, this is the one, this son. This son from this wife, this is the one that's going to, the whole world's going to be changed because of this. And God says, "Now go kill him." And you think, "Now that just, there's just no possible way." My only options are either you're going to have to raise this guy from the dead, or maybe I could die on the way up. Or I mean, think about when you try to logic that out. I mean, which one of you would just go, "Oh yeah, okay, I'm sure this will probably all work out." and you know, like where's a knife? And I mean, wh- wh- I mean, how could you be so flippant? You know. But could you imagine staring two servants in the face? I mean, people that have seen you as a decent man, you've sought to represent yourself accurately to your household. You've loved this kid, God even makes that clear. nearly I'm saying hey we're gonna we're gonna be right back. we're gonna go up there and and, and worship like all, right, all right, now we've got this word worship." Well what does that mean? And inside, I either know. I, and I would every have this moment where I'm just like staring at someone going, I, I don't I don't know how this is gonna work. I just know it is. And and there are times where I've I've stared at someone in the face, going, I, I don't I don't know how you're gonna get through this, but I know you will. And I don't know how God's gonna fulfill this promise, but I know he I know he's good. And so and then to me, as, as what would be called a worship leader, although the term is never used in Scripture, of all, the, of all of the Bible, this is my favorite verses because of what Isaac says. By the way, the first words... Look at the Scripture. You tell me, what are the first words that Isaac says? First two words. My father. Did you get that? He shows up on stage for the first time. The first thing that he says in Scripture is, Dad, my father... So Abraham took the burden off of the burden bearer and he places it on his son. Have you noticed that? That's verse 6. He took the wood of the burnt offering and he laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took the fire in his hand and the knife. And the two of them went together because this is something only the father and son can do. This is not something where a lot of people need to be involved. This has to be resolved between two people, a father and his son. And Isaac speaks to Abraham, his father, and he says, my father, and he says, here I am, son, which tells us that all the time God says, Abraham, and he says, here I am. It isn't like God's like, Abraham, where are you? He's like, I'm right here. Stop looking. Because these two are walking next to each other, and, and Isaac says, dad, and he goes, I'm, I'm here. And, and, and I mean, obviously, unless they're really walking far away from each other. It's, I, I, I mean, could you imagine walking up that hill? You've, you've, got, a, you've got a fire in one hand. You know you're going to put on your kid. You've got a knife in the other, and you're going to sink into your son. And you're walking in there, and, and, and just for him to look at you and say, Dad, at that moment would just, I, I would want to stab myself. I, I, I don't know. I, I'm serious. I don't know how I, my, I could look at one of my children and go, Daddy, and go, Ah, oh, yes, yes, son. Well, he's not dumb. He says, All right, look, Dad. And look at what he says. Look, um, here's the fire, and here's the wood. Where, where's the lamb? Uh, for what it's worth, it's the first time we read the word lamb in Scripture, too. The word is sech in the Hebrew. And I really find that really fascinating. Aphos, where's, where's the lamb? It's interesting if you get to the New Testament. Well, let me just say this. As far as this lamb, the next time I'm going to see a lamb is one that's going to be slaughtered to set the people free in chapter, chapter 12 of Exodus. And then I'm going to wind up seeing it next in Leviticus where that lamb is going to be sacrificed for, um, for the sin offering and for the offense offering, the trespass offering. And then I'm going to get to books like Isaiah 53 where it says he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And the whole time I'm looking and going, where is this lamb? Where is this lamb, Dad? Now, please understand what he's saying here. Because to me, this is so serious, especially in contemporary Christianity. He's like, Dad, you said said we were going to go worship. Okay, so follow me on this. I give every one of you a call last night and say, hey, tomorrow morning, let's all get together and worship. And you're like, all right, cool, let's do it. So we get together. When do you walk out of here saying we worshiped? What happened to you? Was it an experience? or something that transpired? Was it an event? What part, I mean, think in your own head for a moment. What would you say you could walk out of here and say, okay, we genuinely worshiped today? Because this is what Isaac says. Isaac says, Dad, you said worship, right? Okay, well, we've got the wood, and we've got the fire. Well, we've got the fire. That's the first thing he says. And I think, okay, so we've got the spark. We've got the spark, man. We know how to set this thing on fire. It's right here. you got it. You know how to spark this thing. And we've got the stuff. We've got the wood, the thing that's actually going to be able to ignite. But you know what we're missing? We're, we're missing We're missing the sacrifice. I tell you that, that kind of pulls the breath out of my lungs, honestly. Because I can go to places, and man, they've got the spark. You know, we're doing this for an hour and a half. You know, we sparked it up! Man, woo! We worship! We can go to the place and go, no, they got the stuff. Man, Do you see that thing? Man, I, I won't be able to read anything for four days. That light just came, boop, 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 right? And then it was like, the band was, gah, 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 six drummers. Man, you should have seen, and, you know, I mean, I went in there, I said, nice PowerPoint, they kicked me out and said, look at, you are way past your time, Grandpa, that's not PowerPoint anymore. We're all in, we're, you know, we're doing it, and this, it's all holographic images now. And I was like, sitting there, all of a sudden, angels kind of appeared next to me, like, covering themselves, and with their flapping, and running on wheels and wheels, and all uh, Woo! Man, I walked that. I And this is the most amazing thing, because look at, okay, we got the stuff! We got the spark! But it ain't worship without sacrifice, Dad. And I think, wow, this kid's being raised right. What about us? Can we say, man, I really worship? Because I was talking to a pastor yesterday. He says, you know, MasterCard was going down heavy back about 10 years ago. But they did a sociological survey, and they realized in that sociological survey (coughs) that we're no longer a consumer environment. I mean, we went from being an agrarian culture, which is the idea that we planted stuff and we ate it, pretty simple life, to we went to basically being sort of a seller's one where we we grew it and we sold it to other places because we were so blessed, to a consumer one, which is basically now we actually have to buy stuff from everywhere else, but you can only do that for so long. And then we became the experience culture. And it's like the idea of it now is, we don't go to, well... I don't want to pick on any particular place, but some people might want to go someplace where you could get coffee that's kind of cost you a couple bucks from the stars. And in uh, all of that, you know, but it'll seem, they'll tell you most of those people don't go there for the coffee, they go there for the experience. Because, you know, and Mephic Starks did a really big deal on, the, you know, where to get the decor. Do you know where they got all that decor from? Pubs. Pubs in the UK. They went, you know, this is where people congregate. Let's try to make it look like a pub. No, like, because that's the experience. So what did MasterCard do? They said, well, we need to come up with something like that. So what are we going to come up with? Do you remember? This is the idea of it. Landon's singing song worth, oh, I don't know, 5,000 pounds. Landon's microphone. Not much. <laughs> but being serenaded by Landon. Priceless. <laughs> uh, do you realize what they did? As they took, you know, you know, they took the, your daughter's ballet shoes, 30 pounds, 60 pounds, wherever you buy them. All right. Your daughter's, you know, dance lessons, way too much. <laughs> Seeing your daughter perform on stage, priceless. And it shot MasterCard back up and is a competitor. See, what they did is they re-engaged you as the experience culture because they brought you back into the experience. And you can experience that by going into debt with MasterCard. <laughs> All right? Now, why do I say that? Because how do we look at that at church? Oh, hearing the word, yeah, that's going to cost me probably an hour. An hour? What kind of church is this? Oh, but the experience. If I can get you all to levitate. If we can actually get out like 750, you know, like meter speakers and we put them under the floor so when we start to sing, everything vibrates. And God said, Moses. Oh, I feel it. I feel it. Come on. We got to, how do we get a burning bush in here? We got to get a burning bush in here. You know what would happen if we did that, though. Well, first of all, we'd probably get shut down by health and safety. But but you know that this place would pack out full of people for the experience. And there's nothing wrong with having an experience, but if your relationship with anyone is based on what you can experience from them and that's it, it's a cheap relationship. The guy meets a girl and he says, I just can't wait to experience all kinds of things from you. Slap him and walk away. So there's your first experience and your last. But can we do that to God? Can we go to God and say, all right, God. I just, you know, I'm so excited about all the experiences you're going to give me. And I expect some tingles, and I've got, I've like, written a list. And today I'm thinking, probably tingles a little bit of warmth would be kind of nice, touch my heart, make me laugh a couple of times, and cry, but not in front of anyone. And then let me walk out feeling changed and holy and clean. Okay? Can you tick all these boxes when we're done with this time? And God's like, you know, he may do that, but if the bottom line is, if that's all you're kind of getting out of this. And this is what Isaac's saying. Let's not call it worship, then. If it is, who will we be worshiping? It is all about what I can get. And I just love that Isaac just nails this. He looks and he goes, so exactly what, what exactly are we doing here? Now, what would it be like to be Abraham and you just got called out by your son that says, Dad, the thing we're kind of missing is the sacrifice. And how, could you as a dad look and go, oh, no, 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 he's, it's here. Could you do that? <clears throat> but the words he says are the most profound, of course. God will provide Himself. Or for Himself. I mean, in the in the Hebrew, uh, for what it's worth. Alekhim the Hasa. Haseh. I'm sorry, because that's the lamb. God will provide Himself a lamb. And so I start looking for that lamb. And apparently that was enough until we get to verse 8. God will provide that Son. So the two of them went together, and then verse nine, it says they came to the place in which God had told them, and Abraham built the altar there and placed the wood in order. And up to this point I'm still thinking, Right, if I was Isaac, all right. Everything's just like I said, Dad's still missing something. And that says, and then he bound his son. Now he's over a hundred. And it's it's simple math. However old. Isaac is, you put a one before it, and that's it, right? He's 27, dad's 127. That's kind of however old he is. Now, anyone think that if you add a a one to your age, you can't take on a guy that age? I don't care how old you are. There has to be some form of submission in this. I mean, do you ever try to tie up anything that's living? If not, don't confess it to me. I, I don't want to know. Take it to the Lord. The kicking and screaming and yelling or whatever stuff, hypothetically. I mean, imagine how tough that would be for a grown boy. You know, it's like, sit still while I tell you because I'm about to slay you. Which one of you thinks, oh, perfect, all right, awesome. Going to be a different kind of day, Dad. <laughs> it's, and I, and, I just, and I, it's the reason I say that is I look at this and I think, what in the world? And, he's, and, he, and then he lays him down and he lifts up the knife. Abraham stretched out his hand to slay it with the knife to slay his son. So the son is bound, he's placed on the wood, and he's there after three days of being good as dead. And then we read this. And the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven and he said, Abraham. And he said, here I am. Remember, his name means father of multitudes. That's a really interesting name throughout this whole chapter. And he says, don't lay a hand on the lad. And I, and I imagine at that point, I imagine if there you are, here Isaac, and you're laying there as the altar, and, of, and, the, and the angel says, Abraham. And he's like, here I am. He's like, here he is! <laughs> he's like, right, here he is! <laughs> over there! Dad, you heard that, right? Dad, you heard that. Don't lay a hand on the son. You got that, right, Dad? Well, don't lay a hand on him. And then he says, "Because I know you fear me now, because you've not withheld your son." And the, well, again, fear, Yadi. The idea of that you would—that you're the most important thing. You're the biggest. I'm the biggest thing to you, and I know that I'm the biggest thing to you. And now you know that I'm the biggest thing to you because you actually proved it by giving up that which would have cost the most. And I realize I've heard someone say that sacrifice, I'm sorry, that worship is in its best and clearest and purest, that's extreme obedience. And I look at this and I think, oh, when was the last time I could, oh, that God would say I worshipped him? I'm not talking about the last time I said I worshipped God. When was the last time that God would say, oh, you really worshipped me? Because pretty much, I'm pretty much banking on the fact that it's probably nothing that I probably thought was a great experience, a fun experience, a rewarding experience. It was probably something that I had to do that really hurt. And and God's like, now you worshiped me. And I'm like, I thought worship was supposed to be like this kind of semi-euphoric, intoxicating, something slightly less than aerobic, amazing conjoinality of experiences. God's like, no, it's actually when you get something carved off of you that you actually didn't ask to have removed. And I think, Ow. I was told yesterday, a friend of mine, that the word decide, I don't know if you're aware this, the word decide is a Latin word, apparently. went and checked it out just to make sure. And it means to cut. I think that's a really interesting thing, that a real decision is the idea that you, you're cutting yourself off of other options at a moment like that. And I, I just can't help but think about David. And the reason I say this, I'm going to go back to this place, and then we'll get back to the, well, let's get to this point first, and then we'll, we'll get to that. Is that when David actually is going to build this particular um, <clears throat> When he's going to take this particular spot that he's going to build the temple, actually he's going to bequeath it to his son to build. And the man Mora, by the way, says, "You know, well, why, why, why don't you, uh, uh, why don't you, why don't you just take it for free? I mean, you're the king, for goodness' sakes, you could just take it." And he's like, "Look, at, I will not give to God anything that costs me nothing." And that verse, I, I don't know, I still feel that like heartburn, sincerely, because there's a part of me that thinks, "How many things have I given to God and tried to make it sound like anything, and it cost me nothing at all?" And yet tried to make it like it was something amazing. So what happens? He says, here I am. He says, don't lay your hand on the lad. I know that you fear me. And then it says, Abraham, verse 13, lifted his eyes. The last time he lifted his eyes, he saw the place he was going to kill his son. The highest point, by the way, um, the highest flat point or rounded point where he could do so. And he says, behold, there was a ram. Could you say the word ayil? ayil. Now, Can you say the word sech"? seh? Seh is the word for lamb. First time mentioned in Scripture right here, when he says, where's the sech, dad? Where's the seh? And he says, God will provide the sech himself for that offering. And he goes, no. And what we read is that Abram looks and he lifts his eyes. And what does he see? He sees an aiel. Now, those words even remotely sound the same to you, Sech, aiel. They shouldn't because they're different words. And I love the fact that one thing that God does in regards to the Hebraic way of teaching is he puts you on a quest. He puts you in a place and you're like, wow, something's missing here. He said, God was going to provide it. Well, well, oh yeah, that's kind of fancy footwork, Pastor Tony. I know what it says here. I mean, ram, lamb, who really cares about the difference? Well, let me just show you what it says. It was caught in the thicket by its horn. So Abraham went and he said, let's kill this instead. For which I'm sure Isaac said, I'm with you, Dad. And so it says he looked up his burnt offering as his son. It says, um, instead of his son. And then Abraham called the name of the place. Boy, did God provide today. No, that's not what it's called. What is it called? The Lord will provide. Now, I kind of get the idea that Abraham didn't think that that seth was found, because if that seth was found, it would have said God provided. But it's not in the past tense. It's in the future tense. God has yet to provide. And you go, well, maybe that's just someone with a problem with translation. Well, look what it says. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. You can't get much more clear than that. He's about to kill his son. Remember, he says, God will provide the lamb himself. And he's like, well, I don't know. Hey, let's kill this ram instead. Awesome. What are we going to call this place? God's still going to provide. Now, here's the most amazing thing. If you can actually flip there for what it's worth, I would like you to go to Second Chronicles chapter 3. Now, if that's new to you, that's totally understandable. But if you just keep going to the right, you're going to find the Samuels, the Kings, and the Chronicles. After you get through the first five books and Joshua Judges Ruth. So, when you get to 2 Chronicles chapter 3. I don't want you to trust me on this. I want you to read it for yourself. Remember, David had bought this threshing floor. And he said, I will not give it to God, that which cost me nothing. And it says in chapter 3 verse 1, Now Solomon, that's David's son, began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. Did you see that? The only other time where the place in scripture is listed. So follow this. Abram was at Beersheba. He leaves Beersheba and he goes to Jerusalem to a mount called Mount Moriah and he has to go to the highest place that's flat enough for him then to sacrifice his son. You don't build an altar at, at a place that's, you know, that's crazy, but you don't build a temple in a place that's not flat. So, get this, you have a hill that's rounded and flat enough to perform a sacrifice, and then down here you have a place flat enough to build a temple. Now why is that important? Because outside of the confines of the temple, there is a hill. And on the top of that hill is a flat spot. On the top of that flat spot, created by the Father, it looks suspiciously like a skull. Where is it? It is on Mount Moriah. Chosen by God. And on the hill of that skull, on that flat area, stood a cross. And on that cross, the Father of all eternity, the God who is the God of pleasure of all things, who takes pleasure in me, took His only Son, laid my burden upon His back as He carried the wood and was nailed to it and hung there and died on the same place because Abram said, God will provide Himself a lamb God still can provide it. And then Jesus says something really strange because I wonder who was this person who said, Stop, stop, this is enough. Because Jesus says something really strange when he says in chapter eight of John, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. You wonder what in the world that could mean? Could it mean at that particular moment Abraham could possibly have seen Jesus and Jesus said, Hey, that's enough. Now you know. Now you know what's coming. All right, God's going to provide this. He's going to provide this, and on the cross, fourteen hundred years—well, I should say two thousand years later—on that same place, God provided. But why did He do this? Because He did it to show His great pleasure. His pleasure in what? In you, because He says, "Look at God says, I know I'm the most important thing in my life because of what you did." Recognize that math because that's a program now. Because the next time you see someone giving up their son like this, on this place, put that math back in. And wait a minute, I go, well, you did that for me. You sent Jesus to die on the cross for me because I'm the most important thing in your life. And I realize that's the whole point of this. Abram will walk out of there knowing you are the God of pleasure too. You're the God of everything. I don't need to go anywhere, but you're with my one stop for every God need, and you're living and you talk to me and you. But you can. But this is going to happen, for me. And he says, "Then look at. By myself, I've sworn," says the Lord. Verse fifteen, verse sixteen. The angel of the Lord calls again a second time, and he says because you have not withhold your only son. Now, bless blessing, I will bless you, multiplying, I will multiply you, your descendants, we the stars. There was all those promises. Now you see how it's all going to come to pass. Maybe you don't right now know in the heat of what you're in how in the world God's going to work this out, but I guarantee you, he will. And I don't even have to figure it out. And you can come and say, Pastor Tony, explain this to me. And I mean, look it. I can't, but I can tell you this. He's good. I'm sure of that. And he's going to make this work. I don't know how, but it's not for me to know. Sometimes I'll figure it out. Sometimes I'll just... And you ever do something you go, God, I want to know the one reason why you're doing something. It's as if God ever did anything for one reason. Do you really think that? Oh, God, if you could just tell me the one reason why you did this, God's like, look, at, I've got a whole bunch of reasons. And if I told you what they all were, your, your eyes would pop out of your head because there would be no more space for your brain. He says, look, at all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Can you remember when we started this whole thing? I said this, and what God does is He takes them back to the beginning when He called them in the first place. I'm gonna make you a blessing. The whole world's gonna be changed. I haven't stopped that. I mean, we may be 50 years ago or more, but I haven't changed my mind. I've not, reg- I've not moved a letter of it. I've not gone. You know, we took a vote and we decided let's do something new. I knew from the beginning how we were gonna do this. You just haven't. You are what to discover it, because you've obeyed my voice. Abraham returned to his young man now, and gone. We're both back, aren't we? And the guys, you could see almost the other two guys going, yeah, yeah, so what did I miss? You could say, don't say anything, Isaac, you're grounded. (laughs) Dad almost killed me up on the mountain. Yeah, 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 it was pretty rough. No, no, I'm serious. Dad almost killed me on the mountain. So we turned, they rose together, and they went back where they came from, Beershevan. Last four verses. And you're like, why does he even throw this in now? It came to pass after these things that it was told Abraham, Hey, Milka has born children to your brother, Nachor. Snorter, remember that? And uh they're gotta be cute kids. So Chaz is firstborn, so we got Huzz and Buzz and Camel. I just I tend to think they were in Tennessee. Huz and Buz and Camuel, the father of Aram, that's by the way, Syrians. Chesed, Chatso. And, and You go, oh yeah, Bethuel. By the way, he had this um, had this cute little girl named Rebecca. These eight: Milka, Bor, and Nahor, Abraham's brother, and his concubine whose name was Edma. Salbor, and I'm sorry, Tiba. Tacha. And my favorite, Ma'aka, which means oppression. Who names their child oppression? Apparently, his concubine. Why? Why does he put this here? Because you need to recognize from the moment that this boy heads down the mountain, the focus moves from the son that was offered on the mountain to the bride. And that's where we're going to go. It's all now focusing on the bride because that's what's next is getting the bride to this groom. You realize that's the whole point of this? Now look, at as we go to prayer, we've gone through one chapter in Scripture, but to be honest, I felt like I went through the entire Bible with you. This whole Bible is a love story, and this whole love story is about one thing. It's about a God who's so obsessively, undeniably, and irreversibly in love with you that he would give up everything to get you. And unfortunately, that was our price tag because someone had to die for our sins. And and God says, you can die for your sins, but I don't want that. I so love you. I don't want that. I would rather my son die for you and raise from the dead so that actually all your guilt can be paid for. Have you said yes to that gift? Because if you haven't, this whole thing that God had been setting up, this amazing drama that God has been setting up is for one specific thing, and that was to get you back to the cross to say yes. And if you have said yes, let me ask you, how precious do you think you are in his sight? Do you think somehow you're a second class anything to God when this is what he was willing to go through for you? How much more precious? What would God have to do to make it any more precious? If he wrote your name in the sky, it would be less precious. I could hire someone to try to rate your name in the sky with a plane, but I wouldn't give up my child for you. Which one of those things means more to you? And as we go to prayer, I'm just praying that God would cause us one more time to fall in love with Him the way we should. Would you pray with me? Lord, for all the things that you've laid out in this text, for the Lamb... And I think the first, as the first time is mentioned here that God will provide Himself a Lamb Father and then the first time in the New Testament where we read, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. If I couldn't put those two things together, I'm missing something. And we get to the end of the book and in the book of Revelation it's the Lamb slaughtered before the foundation of the world. The Lamb is slaughtered and I think, well, You've always had this in mind. God, I just pray right now for every one of us. Lord, I pray for every Christian here that You that you unclean up the cross, and you stop making it old news. You don't allow it to be something that we just sort of kind of know. Lord, but rather, would You please, please today, please today change that and give us a fresh appreciation for the horrible price You had to pay to get me, You had to pay to get us. And I thank You that You would love me this much. God, if You would love me this much, would You please... Make me a better bride, so to speak. Make me a better Christian. One who really walks in gratitude. Shame on me for being ungrateful if this is all you were willing to go through for me and I'm still busy trying to look for something else. God, I just pray that you remove from us, Lord, a lust for the temporary and foolish in comparison to the great gift you've offered God, I just want to pray right now for every person in this room, myself included. That you would show us where we really are with this, this Father who gave this Son for us. And like it or not, you've got a choice to make today, beloved. Where are you really going to be with this? Are you going to let God be your pleasure? Or are you going to still try to milk the world and its destruction? I'm making my choice today. Would you pray with me if it's so? And, and just listen. And if you agree, I ask you to say a resounding and confident amen. And whether you've never given your life to Jesus Christ or today, you know you have, but you just realize, God, I, I just want to make it even more of a serious thing. I ask for that, that serious amen. And, and here it is. God, I, I just I come to you in need. You know I'm not perfect. I know I'm not perfect. And I know that you only accept perfection, but your sacrifice for me on the cross was perfect. Your payment for my guilt was perfect. And I just I just pray, God, that I know that so many times I read the Scriptures and I forget, Father, that when you talk about the gift of the cross, it's almost always listed from your perspective, not even from Jesus's, that you so loved the world, you gave your only begotten Son, that this is love, not that we loved you, but that you loved us and gave your Son and <clears throat> Father, it's easy for me to think of Jesus dying on the cross and thinking, what great sacrifice. But to be honest, I, I, I know that I would, mu- I would infinitely rather be tortured than watch my children tortured. And, and God, I, I, Father, I just want to tell you thank you for the torture you must have gone through to get me, to watch your son die like this. But I, I do pray that you, that you would really be my pleasure, that I wouldn't be trying to chase down the world for things that only you can give. So forgive me for trying to do that, I pray, and make me completely and absolutely enthralled with you, even as you are with me. Be my appetites. Be my appetites, Lord. Be my satisfaction. As I surrender to you, confessing Jesus is my payment on the cross for my sins, my ransom, my resurrection, and my Lord. And Jesus, thank you as well. Father, thank you for adopting me as yours. And I am yours as much as I am able. In Jesus' name, amen.